Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesterfield Baptist Church. It was an exciting Sunday in church today. This was our first Sunday back in the main auditorium after a couple months of not having service, of live stream and drive-in service. We were excited to be back in the house of God. The title of the message this morning is Wrath versus Mercy. Please enjoy. Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse number 7. You know, when you come to 1 Chronicles 21, we come to a very interesting passage of Scripture in the Bible. If I were to ask most Christians this morning, what's the greatest sin in David's life? Well, they probably look at you and probably would not hesitate with the answer. They'd say, oh, well, that's Sunday School 101. Everybody knows that the greatest sin in David's life is that sordid story with Bathsheba. And of course, that was an incredibly wicked thing that David did. And the day in the, that day in the life of David, David would rue that day for the rest of his life. Yet at the same time, I don't know exactly how you judge what's the worst sin or even how you rate sin. I mean, after all, it's all bad. But you know, at the end of that story, there was a dead man named Uriah. But if you read that story carefully, it wasn't just Uriah. There were other dead soldiers too. So there would be funerals across the land of Egypt, who knows how many. And of course, a year later, a little baby would die. There would be some very innocent people die because of David's sin. But you know, there's another story in David's life. And this time, there are 70,000 dead men. This time, the cry of death would be rising up from the, sound, from the sands of Israel. Cries from the lips of the mothers who lost their sons. Cries from the lips of the children who lost their daddies. And from the wives who lost their husbands. It very well could be a day in Israel's history when Israel could be completely wiped off the face of the map and was all a result of David's sin. If you're physically able to this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand in respect and reverence to the Word of God, and we're just going to read one verse. And that verse is 1 Chronicles 21 and verse number 7. The Bible says... And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. Let's read it one more time. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. Would your God do that? The God of modern religion, I'm afraid, would not. But let me let you in on a little secret this morning. The God of modern religion is not the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be gathered back in your house as a people. Lord, I pray this morning that you'd be with us, Lord, and that you'd uh, ease our minds and our hearts and let us be attentive to the Word of God and pay attention to what you have for us this morning. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning as we go through the message that you've given us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that your will be done today. Be with us. Be with our hearts. Fill this place with your power. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
It's a very desperate time in 1 Chronicles 21. Samuel puts it one way. Chronicles puts it another. And it's not an either or, but it's a combination of the two. The Word of God tells us that Israel had so provoked the Lord that the Lord did an incredibly stunning thing. And what the Israel had pushed the Lord to do is God actually provoked Satan to go to David and told David to number the people of Israel. God literally uses Satan to do his purposes. That's a really, really stunning thing. It throws away a lot of the modern thinking about God. It throws away a lot of the modern thinking about his action and about his work. It throws that completely out the window. When it's time for the judgment of God, God actually uses Satan to do his purposes. Now the Bible tells us that David is about to number the nation of Israel. Right now we're doing that in America. We call it taking a census. And, uh, you know, we come here, we take a brief look at this story, and we think, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with taking a census? I mean, what, what, what's really the problem here? I mean, I've read this story in the past, and I've thought that same thing. What, what really is the problem? Nations take censuses all the time. What's really going on here? Because in the Bible, numbering the people was not only allotted in the Bible, it was important in the Bible. The Bible says in, in Numbers 26 that a census was to be taken to see how many people would be in the military. Again, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, we're to number the people, of course, for tax purposes. Of course, you're supposed to number the people for tax purposes. Of course. So in the Bible... There are reasons for censuses. There's reason for God to tell a man like King David, I want you to go uh, number the people. There are times when it's a very appropriate thing. But here in 1 Chronicles 21, the story is very, very different. This wasn't a census to see how many, how many sons got drafted into the military. This wasn't a census to see how many people would get audited during tax time. No, this wasn't a census for that. It seems that this census right here was all about David's pride. You know, David's coming on the back half of his kingdom. He's already been through the Bathsheba incident. He's already got through that. And no, you'd think David would wake up every morning with a smile on his face. No, David was really good at praising God. And you think David would wake up every morning and just praise God and say, God, thank you for where you've put me. Thank you for my situation. I'm in this great palace. I'm king of the greatest nation in the world. I've probably got more wealth and abundance than anybody else alive on the face of the earth. But the thing is, it's never enough, is it? You see, Christian, a proud man never has enough money. A proud man never has enough glory. A proud man never has enough fame. And for David, it would seem all he wanted to do was flaunt his fame. So the Bible says in verse number three, he goes to Joab to number the people. Verse number three says, and Joab answered, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. 
But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then doth my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause to trespass Israel? Down in verse number five. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David. And all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four hundred three score and ten thousand men that drew sword. You know, it's very interesting here. It's very interesting that earlier in the Bible, God says, when you number the people, I want you to leave out Benjamin and I want you to leave out the tribe of Levi. When you number the people, I want you to leave them out. What would seem from verse number six in this passage that God had commanded Joab to count Benjamin and to count Levi. And Joab, on purpose, left them out. Let me tell you something today, Christian. When Joab is making better spiritual decisions than you, you've got problems. When Joab is telling David how to live righteously, something has gone desperately, desperately wrong. David wants a number. David wants to say how great I am. David wants to say, look at how powerful we are. David just wants a number so he can exalt himself. So now the Bible tells us there's going to be a reaction from heaven. In verse 7, God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel. Would your God do that? Would your God smite? After all, aren't we convinced today in our modern houses of religion that God doesn't do anything to us? He only does things for us. Sounds sweet, doesn't it? Sounds like a good deal. But it looks to me here in verse number seven that God is doing something to them. The Lord smote Israel. Well, how is this thing going to happen? Well, down in verse number nine, the Bible says that God talks to a man named Gab the seer instead of straight to David. Now, a seer, and sometimes you'll see them in the Old Testament, was a prophet who not only heard the message of God, he wasn't only an, an, an ear witness, he was also an eyewitness. With a seer like Gad, God would not only give a message, but God would, only, would always give a vision. And God said to Gad, there's going to be a message, it must be clear. I'm not only going to let you hear it, I'm going to let you see it, and I want you to go tell David. And Gad saw the vision, and he went to David, and he said, David, thus saith the Lord, I tell, I offer thee three things. Choose ye this day what I will do unto you. And Gad said to David, David, you've got three options. Number one, you can have three years of incredible famine, or you can have three months of running from the enemy, or you can have three days of what the Bible calls the sword of the Lord. Now, there's a Christian magazine out called the sword of the Lord. And I can tell you this morning that Gad was not talking about reading material. He definitely was not. The sword of the Lord. Now, so what are you going to do, David? What are you going to do? You've got these options. You've got these three options, David. Which option are you going to choose? 
And you know, I find it fascinating that even as, as David is so backslidden far away from God, David is making decisions based solely on his pride. David has abandoned what he knows is right. Still, spending that time as a young boy studying the Word of God, spending that time as a young boy looking up at the sky, being taught by the Spirit of God, still spending all that time was enough to influence David even in his backslidden moment. What I want to tell you this morning is this is a great reminder that once the word of God goes into the heart, once the word of God goes into the mind, a son or a daughter may get far away from God. A church member must might get far away from God. But I'm here to tell you this, Christian, that the word of God does not come back void. It does not come back void. That's why we put the word of God into the hearts of little boys and girls in children's church. And we put the word of God into the hearts and minds of little boys in vacation Bible school. And that's why we go on youth activities and we take the teenagers and we put the word of God into the hearts of teenagers. Because one day they may get far away from God, but one day they're going to look back and the word of God isn't going to come back void. And one day they may be far away from God, but if the word of God is in their heart, they're going to know they're far away from God. There will always be conviction. The word of God does not come back void this morning. And in a moment like this, when David has abandoned God and David is backslidden away from God and he's letting pride make his decisions, even in this moment, David remembers as a little boy he was in vacation Bible school and David remembers when he was studying this, when he was studying the Bible in the youth group, David remembers all this and David makes the right choice. Why? How do we know David made the right choice? Why did David make this choice? You know why he does? He tells us in verse number 13. Verse 13. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of my Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. He made the right choice, didn't he? All those years of studying the Bible and all those years of hearing the Word of God and all those years putting the Word of God to music, David knew about the tender mercies of God. He said, there is one choice I can make here. There is one choice I can make. Don't let me fall into the hands of humans. Let me fall into the hands of my God. The one thing I know is that as powerful and as terrible as his judgments are and as great and terrible as his smiting may be, I know greater his mercies. Let me fall into the hands of my God. And for all David's backslidden condition, David makes the right choice. You know, this morning I'm pretty sure David understood that God could do a lot more damage than a famine could do in three years. I'm sure David understood that God could do a lot more damage in three days than his enemies could do in three months. But you know what? David is going to trust in the mercies of God. So now, David has made his choice. Now the wrath of God begins to fall. 
And get this. You know what the sword of the Lord is? It's pestilence. It's a disease. Man, in three days, that's not enough time for the CDC and the WHO to get involved, is it? Man, we're all, we've been in this thing a few months, and they say that the death toll is 80-something thousand. Try 70,000 in three days. See how you react to that. So it's a disease. It's a pestilence. It's something we know about today, but on a much, much greater scale. The Bible says it starts at the coast, and most likely that's the Mediterranean Sea. And like a tidal wave, it takes three days for the disease to swath across the land. It starts like a tidal wave. At the end of those three days, 70,000 people are dead. Can you imagine it today? Can you imagine what it meant, what it must be like? The screams starting at the coast, and it just gets louder and louder. The screams of the wives that have lost their husbands. The screams of the mothers who've lost their sons. The screams of the children who've lost daddy. 70,000 screams. It just gets over three days. It gets louder, and it gets louder, and it gets louder. And then we come to verse number 12. There'd be three days of the sword of the Lord. But you know who brings the sword of the Lord? The Bible says the person who brought the sword of the Lord was the angel of the Lord. Now, most of the time, the Old Testament and probably here, when you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, that is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the judgment of God begins at the coast and it starts to slowly grind across the land of Israel all the way up to Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves in verse number 15. The end of that verse says, And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ordnam the Jebusite. Now in the book of Samuel, he's given another name. In the book of Samuel, he's called Aruna. So the, Lord, the angel of the Lord makes his way across the land, smiting along the way. He makes his way to the city of Jerusalem, to the highest. He goes to the highest spot of the city. He, po he poises himself with the sword drawn over the highest spot in Jerusalem, the sword still dripping with the blood of 70,000 people of Israel. And it is at this moment on the highest spot in Jerusalem where the angel of the Lord has the sword of the Lord dripping with blood, ready to crash down on the city of Jerusalem. It is at this moment that there's a pause in the wrath of God. We read about it in verse 15. And he, and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay now thy hand. So God tells the angel of the Lord to stop just for a moment. This isn't the end. This is not the end. But there's going to be a momentary pause in the wrath of God. Can you get the picture this morning? I want you to picture the angel of the Lord. Most likely that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's poised over the highest spot in Jerusalem. He's got the sword of the Lord drawn. It's dripping with the blood of 70,000 men. And all it's going to take is one word. All it's going to take is one command from God. And that sword will come down upon the city. And when it does, 70,000 will seem to be but just a small number. It will be just a drop in the bucket. Death and carnage are a heartbeat away. And it's at this moment God says, stop. 
for a moment. You know, there are times in the Bible where God literally peels back the veil and shows us the spiritual battles that are taking place behind the scenes. This is going to be one of those times. It's a lot like what happened in the city of Dothan. You know the story. The Assyrians had besieged the city of Dothan, and they had laid siege to the city, and it was a common thing to do in Bible times. You see, when the bigger cities had walls, it didn't matter how big your army was. It didn't matter how strong your army was. That army could come. There ain't no getting over, around, or through them walls. So what they would do is they would lay siege to the city, and what that means is that the army would surround the city. No one in, no one out. You can't get to your farms. You can't get get to your crops and they would begin to starve the city out. Things got so desperate in the city of Dothan that, widow, that, 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 that women were cannibalizing their own children and people were crying out in fear and people were panicking and they were afraid to die. But there was only one man that wasn't panicking in Dothan and that was God's, that was God's man Elisha. Elisha wasn't panicking. But in a moment of fear, the servant of Elisha came and cried out in fear, afraid of death, panicking, afraid of dying. And Elisha, you know what he said? Elisha looked at the servant and said, do not fear. For them that be with us are more than them that be with them. And you remember what happened next? God took the veil and pulled the veil away from the eyes of that servant. And he looked on that mountain. And that mountain was full of chariots of fire surrounding God's man. The situation was desperate. What a moment. What a moment that was. Christian, we go through our day and we take for granted the spiritual battle going on around us. We take for granted that we don't fight flesh and blood. We take for granted that, that there, there are, we fight powers and principalities of the air. And if just a moment this morning, if just a moment this morning, God could peel back the veil and God could show you the spiritual battle going on for your family. And God could show you the spiritual battle going on for your home. And God could show you the spiritual battle going on in this place right now for a sinner that needs to come to Jesus we would be absolutely stunned we would be stunned at the angels and the demons that are fighting over your kids of the angels and the demons that are fighting over your family we would be stunned today and in this story this morning, once again, the veil will be taken back. It will be pulled back. And of all places, it will be the threshing floor of Ornan. The people are going to see another spiritual battle unfold before their very eyes. Verse number 16. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between heaven and earth, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Can you imagine it this morning? The angel of the Lord, most likely Jesus Christ himself, stands with that sword drawn over the threshing floor of Ornan, dripping with the blood of 70,000 Israelites. Death and carnage, a heartbeat away. And in a moment with so much anticipation that your heart stops and so much anticipation that you can't even take a breath, all it's going to take is one word, one command, and that sword will come crashing down. And at that moment, God peels back the eyes of David. And David sees the angel of the Lord. 
And David sees the sword dripping with the blood. And let me tell you something, Christian. If David didn't know things were desperate then, he knows they're desperate now. He knows it now. In just a few moments, a decision will be made. The city will either be spared or the city will be destroyed. David doesn't know what will happen, but in a few moments, everyone will know. This is the moment. This is the moment in time that will alter the course of history. In a moment where you can hardly breathe, a decision will be made. The angel of the Lord is poised to destroy the city of Jerusalem. And it's going to take one command. It's going to take one word. And nobody's going to stop him. You know what's interesting about this scene is in verse number 15. The Bible tells us the angel stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Really? A threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite? Let's examine that for a minute. Do we know anything about the Jebusites? Well, of course we do. They're pretty popular in the book of, jo- in the book of Joshua. In fact, in Joshua 3.10, as the Israel's coming into the promised land, the Bible says, And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know the living God is among you, and that he will fail, uh, that he without fail will drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. I don't see anybody else doing better than that. Uh, but the last on the list here is the Jebusites. At the end of Joshua, Joshua 24, 11, the Bible says, And the Jebusites and I delivered them into your hand. So if God got rid of the Jebusites in Joshua, how is a Jebusite here 400 years later? Well, it would seem that his ancestors and his family weren't completely wiped out. They weren't completely wiped out. They were able to dodge the judgment of God. And not only that, but 30 years prior to this, David had, had, had taken over the city of Jerusalem. He had had a battle and taken over the city of Jerusalem. Before that, Jerusalem was called Jebus. Now this man, Ordnan or Aruna, he, a lot of the Bible experts would think that he was the king of Jebus uh, or the city of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem because of the location of his threshing floor. It was on the highest spot. So they think that Ordnan was the king of Jebus, but that doesn't matter. None of that matters. It doesn't matter that this man's family was spared 400 years ago. It doesn't matter that 30 years prior he had survived the battle because he is here on this day being threatened because it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor because everybody must face the wrath of God. And isn't isn't it interesting that it all happens over a threshing floor? Really? A threshing floor? Man, don't you think what we need right now is a great house of religion? What we need now is a cathedral. What we need is some stained glass windows. We need a choir loft. We need a pulpit. We need some pews right about now. Because after all, what we need is some religion. Religion is going to fix the problem. But isn't it interesting that it all happens over a dirty, smelly threshing floor? It couldn't get any dirtier. See, a threshing floor, there was a rock on top of this mountain. And they'd take the ground, the grain, and they'd spread the grain out. They'd take the beast of burden, and he would march over the grain, and he would crush it up. And the hope is that when the wind came in, it'd blow the chaff away, and the heavier grain would lay there. 
It was a, wasn't a clean place. It was a dirty place. It was a smelly place. There was nothing religious about this place. Let me tell you something, Christian. When the judgment of God gets ready to fall, the answer will never be more religion. Answer will never be more religion. We don't need ministers in beautiful robes. We don't need katatas. We don't need stately religion now. This is serious. Wrath of God is getting ready to cascade from heaven onto Jerusalem. The future of Jerusalem is at stake. We don't need the traditions of religion now. This is desperation. And of all things, God didn't ask for a tabernacle. God didn't ask for beautiful artwork. God didn't ask for beautiful music. When the wrath of God is going to fall, he only requires one thing. Note, if you would, please, the end of verse 16. And then David and the elder of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Earlier in the verse, the angel of the Lord stand between heaven and earth. Verse number 20, and Ordnon turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons with him hid themselves. You know, the David, David and the elders, they aren't, they aren't dressed in beautiful robes. There's no suit and tie now. They're dressed in sackcloth and ashes, a garment of sorrow. Because what we need now is we don't need cleaned and pressed, double-breasted suits. We don't need that now. What we need now is we need somebody in sackcloth weeping before God. By the way, that's what our country needs now. Ornan and his sons are hiding. David and the elders are in sackcloth. The angel is over the city. The sword is drawn. So what now? Because you don't need religion now. You know what you need? A bloody altar. You need a bloody altar. Verse 18. And the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord. Now this altar isn't in a tabernacle. This altar isn't in some house of worship. He set it up on the threshing floor of Ordnon, the Jebusite. So this isn't going to be as modern religion says. This isn't going to be as we know religion it is. Humans are not going to dictate terms to God. When the wrath of God gets ready to fall, there is, no, there is no negotiation here. There is no cutting of a deal here. God isn't just going to look the other way. God isn't going to say, okay, we'll put this behind us. With the wrath of God getting ready to fall, God says there has to be a bloody altar. And on that altar, there has to be a sacrifice. And that, that sacrifice must be innocent. And this blood must be shed. But most importantly, most importantly, and this is, it's all meaningless unless God approves. It's all meaningless unless God approves. You know what David didn't say? David didn't look over to the elders and say, elders, let's figure out a new way to do this. Let's figure out a better way to do this. Let's see if we can do this sacrifice where PETA doesn't get mad. Let's see if we can find a way to do this where the ACLU won't get mad. Let's see if we can find a way to do this where the LGBT community won't get mad. Let's see if we can find a way to do this that won't upset Oprah. No, because when the wrath of God is getting ready to fall, you better be sure you do this God's way. There's no other way to do it. There has to be an altar. There has to be an innocent sacrifice. A lamb is going to have to die that has done nothing wrong. He's not going to be strangled. 
He's not going to be humanely put to sleep, but his blood must be shed, and that blood must fill that altar. But most importantly, please catch this this morning. Catch it if you don't catch anything else. All of it is meaningless unless God approves. Begin reading with me in verse number 22. Then David said to Ordnon, grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar thereon unto the Lord. Thou shalt grant it me for the full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ordnan said unto David, take it thee. I bet he did. I bet Ordnan was saying, David, you can take anything you want. And let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for the burnt offerings, and the threshing floor, the threshing, threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. And King David said to Ordnan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave the Ordnon for the, the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. When the wrath of God is getting ready to fall, Christian, now isn't the time to be clipping coupons. Now isn't the time to get out your Kroger sale paper. Now's not the time to go to the internet and download a Groupon. Now's not the time for that. David, the or, uh, David said to Ordnon, I need, uh, uh, you need not buy, I, I don't just need to buy the threshing floor. David said, I need to buy the whole mountain. And Ordnon said to David, you don't have to buy it. Take it all. I'll give it to you for free. I'll give you the mountain, the threshing floor, the instruments, the, the sacrifices. I'll give it all to you. And, you know, it'd be awfully easy if David, if David had been German to start being cheap right about now. What do you mean by that, Brett? Well, what I mean by that is when Adolf Hitler was rising to power, Adolf Hitler was rising to power on the backs of the Lutheran religion in the land of Germany. And it's on the backs of religion that Adolf Hitler rose to power. And as he was rising to power, there was one Lutheran pastor who saw this with great discernment. And he put it like this, right before Adolf Hitler had him brutally murdered, he put it like this, the problem in Germany is ministers and their cheap grace. And that's the problem in America today, cheap grace. There's a lot of Baptist pre preachers out there, and there's a lot of pastors of churches. They get up, and every other word is grace, 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 grace. Let me tell you something. Grace is good, but grace isn't cheap. There's nothing cheap about grace. One day soon, once again, people will start to fill houses of religion and they'll file in by the thousands and they'll file in by the tens of thousands. And after the rock band gets done playing that the church is centered around, the pastor's going to stand up and he's going to preach a cookie cutter sermon full of lighthearted fluff that was copied from the last week. And when he gets done, he's going to look out at the invitation and he's going to say, if you want to go to heaven, raise your hand and say, I love Jesus. That is not Bible salvation. That's not Bible salvation. We love him because he first loved us. And salvation is not saying, Jesus, I love you. I'm here to tell you today, there is no Bible salvation without repentance and faith. 
A sinner must realize that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man goeth unto the Father except by him. There is no cheap prayer. There is no cheap grace. There is no cheap offering. When Aruna said, you got it, man. You can have it all. I'll give it to you for free. David said, no, I'm getting nothing on the cheap here. There are no deals when it comes to paying the price for the judgment of God. And when it was all said and done, David gave him what's equivalent to $327,000 to buy that place. So he's got the place now. He's got the altar now. He's got the sacrifice now. But Christian, I'm here to tell you, all of it is meaningless without the approval of God. Verse 26 and David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. Did you notice all the S's in there? It wasn't just one offering. It was offering after offering after sacrifice after sacrifice after animal after animal. And when David was done, the place was just probably dripping with the blood of all these offerings. And every animal that dies, you have to understand that animal was innocent. That animal did nothing to deserve this. The innocent must die for the price to be paid. There is no such thing as cheap salvation. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Somebody has to pay a heavy price. And it's at this moment David steps back from the altar. He's given all the sacrifices. He's done everything he needs to do. He looks up at the angel of the Lord. There's a sword of the Lord drawn above him. And this is the moment he's been waiting for. This is the moment where the wrath of God collides with the mercy of God and only one of them is going to win. The wrath of God meets the mercy of God. And look with me please in verse 26. And he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offerings. You know, four times in the Old Testament, God sent fire on an altar. God sent fire on an altar. He did it way back in Leviticus 9 when the priesthood was inaugurated. The second time he'll do it is here. The third time he did it is in 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicates the temple. The fourth time he'll do it is in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah faces off against the prophet of Baal on Mount Caramel. Four times. Four times. And every time fire fell on an altar in the Old Testament, it was God saying, I approve. Verse 27. And the Lord God commanded the angel and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. The wrath of God is going to collide with the mercy of God and it is going to do it of all places, the threshing floor of Aruna, a dirty, smelly threshing floor. The wrath of God collided with the mercy of God and mercy won the day. Earn the Second Chronicles 3. Second Chronicles 3. I know I've been preaching a little while this morning. Bear with me. I hadn't preached like this in a couple weeks. I got to get it out. Second Chronicles chapter 3. So many people have said, we didn't come here to go home. But I promise you, I'm not here to scare you. I'm not going to be too much longer. There's just one more thing we got to say about this story before we put it to bed. And that's the location of this threshing floor. If you have your places in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. 
where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. So this wasn't just the threshing floor of Aruna. This wasn't just the threshing floor of Ornon. This highest spot in Jerusalem was called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was home to the Temple Mount. It's the most fought over piece of real estate in the world, and it will continue to be fought over all the way through the book of Revelation. But you know, if we started reading this morning in the book of Genesis and we read to this point, we'd say at this point, we'd say, hmm, Mount Moriah. I've heard that before. In fact, I heard about that verse. I've heard about that, that mount back in Genesis 22. There was a man named Abraham. God looked at Abraham and said, I want you to take thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Go to Mount Moriah and give your son as a sacrifice to me. You read every verse of that story and it just bleeds Calvary. And Abraham said to his servants, we are coming up and we are coming down. You know, we, we don't know this by reading Genesis 22. That's why I'm glad we've got Hebrews 11 so we can know this. But Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham had full intention of plunging that knife into his son because Abraham knew in his heart that God was going to raise his son from the dead. That's why Abraham said, we are going up and we are coming down. It's here on the top of Mount Moriah, a.k.a. the threshing floor of Aruna, a.k.a. the temple mount. The wrath of God is going to meet the mercy of God. Isaac lay on that altar, and Isaac laid down on purpose. He laid down willingly. I'm pretty sure Isaac could have took his daddy. Isaac lay down willingly. He never protested once. And Abraham, his daddy, raised up that knife and was about to plunge it into his son when God stopped him. Why? Because God provided a sacrifice. And you know what? Not only did God provide a sacrifice, but they called that place Jehovah Jireh, which means God provides. And on that day, the, mercy, the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God, and mercy won the day. Now in that very spot, David is here now, and David looks up, and he sees the wrath of God once again collide with the mercy of God, and once again, mercy won the day. I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, if you stand on top of Mount Moriah, you don't have to look very far to the north, and you're going to see a cliff with the features of a skull. And what that is is that's another mount. And on top of that mount, there's going to be another battle, and it's going to be a lot, it's going to be a bigger battle. It's not going to be a battle about life or death. It's going to be a battle about eternity. It's going to be a battle for heaven and hell. You know, the Bible doesn't say that sinners will be condemned. The Bible says that sinners are condemned already. Listen to me. 
listened to if, if sinners only knew, if sinners only knew how desperate this was, if they only knew that, that they hanging over a cliff, hanging by a thread, and, and the fires of hell are licking their feet, and they're one moment away, they're one word away, we're not, we're not guaranteed to the next second, we are one moment away from dropping off into hell for all of eternity. If they knew that, if they knew how desperate the situation was, they wouldn't be waiting on, a, on an invitation. They'd be running right now and grabbing the ankles of this preacher and saying, I can't wait for an invitation. I need Jesus now. They just knew how desperate it was. And when the wrath of God is ready to fall, what he wanted from Abraham and what he wanted from David was a bloody altar. But all they could do is look forward. They say, okay, we're bringing our lambs, but one day God's going to bring his own lamb. John the Baptist preached the message. He said, behold the lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And God's lamb is not simply going to atone. God's, God's lamb is not simply going to cover. Jesus is going to take the sins away. They took Jesus. Now the nails are in his hand. And the nails are in his feet. And as the blood flowed from Mount Moriah on the two occasions with these lambs, on Mount Calvary, the blood will flow from the body of Christ. The price is great. The altar is made. The sacrifice is given. But all of it's meaningless unless God approves. There's a wonderful word in the King James Bible. And it's the word propitiation. It's a beautiful word. But a, a, a propitiation is more than just somebody who takes my judgment for themselves. A propitiation is meaningless unless the judge approves. In Isaiah 53, the Bible says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Jesus paid it all, and the stamp of approval was put on the cross. I was a sinner dangling over the fires of hell. There was no need for a trial. I was condemned already. And the Lord led me to a place called Calvary. And when God looked at that cross, he said, the price has been paid, and I am satisfied. And on Mount Calvary, one last time, the wrath of God will meet the mercy of God. And when the dust settles, we have an empty grave. Mercy won the day. Wrath versus mercy, and mercy won. Years ago, there was a broken-hearted daddy this broken-hearted daddy went to a local pastor about his son. You see, his son was rebellious, and his son was very wicked, and his son had got kicked out of every school. Every school had turned him away. He had been expelled from everywhere, and the only place he had left to go to school was this little Bible school, this little Christian school that this pastor had in his small church. So the daddy went to this pastor and begged the pastor. He said, Pastor, you have to let my son go to school here. I'm at the end of my rope with him. There's no other school he can go to. Pastor, you have to let my son in. 
That pastor looked at that brokenhearted daddy that morning and said, I'm sorry, sir, this isn't a reform school. This is a Christian school. This is a Bible school. This is not a reform school. I don't think I can help you. And the daddy, the brokenhearted daddy, looked at the pastor and begged him once again. He said, please, you have to help me. You have to help me. There's nothing else I can do. Please help my son. That pastor looked at that daddy and said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll agree that he can come to this school on one condition. And that condition is every single morning before school, he is in my office, and I'm going to teach him personally from the Word of God. And the daddy said, you've got it. It wasn't soon, very long after that, William Newell began to go into that pastor's office and study under him, and he started learning from that pastor, and soon enough, God broke through the wickedness, and God broke through the through rebellion of that teenager, and he accepted Christ as Savior. Years later, William Newell had given his life in service to God, and William Newell was actually a Christian school teacher at that very same school. One day during chapel, a, past, a preacher got up to preach in ta chapel, and that pastor preached on the cross, and it touched William Newell so, so much. William Newell, after that chapel service, he went back to his office, and he sat down at his desk, and he began to pray and thank God for his salvation and thank God for his tender mercies. When he got done praying, the Holy Spirit led him to write his life's testimony down on paper. William Newell grabbed a piece of paper, he grabbed a pen, and he began to write these words. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me, he died on Calvary. By God's words, at least my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploringly turned to Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. One day Abraham was on top of Mount Moriah and the wrath of God met the mercy of God and mercy won the day. Years later, David was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the same place, and the wrath of God collided with the mercy of God, and on that day, mercy won the day. But as David and Abraham were on top of Mount Moriah, little did they know they could look just a little to the north, and they'd see a mount where the greatest battle would take place for all the ages. We as already condemned sinners would dangle over hell and one last time the wrath of God will meet the mercy of God. Abraham can tell us. David can tell us. But an empty tomb says it best. Mercy won the day.